0: Hello, this is Janet Gallen welcoming you to Love Letters Live, and today's guest is another exceptional person and someone I invited because I heard her speak at a conference more or less, with many speakers, and she talked about palliative care, she talked about caring for the dying, and I was so, I said to her just now even, I was so touched and moved and comforted and education all in the same speech all in the same moment everything she said I was just wrapped so I asked her to come join us and it is Red Wing Kesar and Red Wing is um, a palliative care how do you how do you want to say it
1: I think of myself as a palliative care nurse and educator.
0: Oh, and you were and you are a nurse, aren't you? Yes, oh, I'm a nurse. Can we start with your nursing and like work up to how you came to palliative care and then talk about what that requires? Sure. Okay, you go. Uh but really how I define myself is as a
1: midwife to the dying. Okay. Okay. And I came to nursing because of my desire and understanding that my work in life was about being a midwife to the dying. Really? I had a very intense experience in 1987, no, 1988. My best friend was in a motorcycle accident, and she lay in a coma in a hospital for three weeks in the dying process. And every day of those three weeks, I would walk into the intensive care unit and honestly feel like there was a voice saying to me, this is the work you're supposed to be doing. You are supposed to be a midwife to the dying, just as people need midwives when they are bringing spirits into the world. Oh, I'm
0: so glad you said this because I have always been aware, at least it's you know been in my head... That we pay so much attention and celebration and care to those about to be born coming into the world. Yes. And we don't do it with those leaving the world and they need it. Absolutely. They're going to we don't know where. Right. Okay, right. go ahead. And so you know typically
1: knew. people are scared. Um luckily these days not always scared, but it's
0: mostly pretty common that people are scared so you knew and, it at that point but did you, yeah. you said you always knew it did you have a feeling about this as a child
1: I had a feeling about it honestly on my 18th birthday my grandmother died on my birthday
0: mm-hmm. and
1: she had lived with me my entire life and I had a very strong bond to her she had actually been um, a birth midwife after escaping her town in Russia where she grew up and where girls were not allowed to be educated. And so she went to the big city, which was, strangely enough, in this day and age, listening today, um, she went to Kiev, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which was the nearest big city, and figured out how to go to school and educate herself. Um, You know, she was the youngest of nine in an Orthodox Jewish family and was the only girl. But she went to school and she became a midwife. And, you know, had a very intense rest of her life uh, mm-hmm. in Europe and escaping Europe. But she was very much a model for me. And when she died at my birthday, something happened to me about understanding that connection between birth and death, living and dying. Uh, that was very, very potent for me. And did you
0: share that with anybody?
1: Not for a long time. Mm-hmm. Not for a long time. Um and when, you know, when I was in college, I thought I was going into pre-med and becoming a doctor and then my life changed and that didn't happen. And so it wasn't really until my late thirties or my mid thirties when my friend was in a coma that I realized I did need to go back to School and even back to Western medicine, so that I could have a legitimate way to get to the bedside to become what I considered a midwife to the doctor. So people
0: would listen to you.
1: Exactly. You need credentials. Exactly. Okay. You need credentials. Um, So that was what I did. And I went to school, and then I worked as a nurse in oncology and in critical care. I ran a small intensive care unit for years at a rural hospital in Mendocino County. Um, But all the while studying end-of-life issues and care, I studied with Joan Halifax, an amazing teacher in New Mexico. Um, And then I began teaching my own workshops on being with the dying um, had my own nonprofit up
0: there for a while. What did you teach? What is there? Okay, what is there to teach about working with the dying? What is there to teach about dying? Good questions. <laughs> um, honestly, I
1: think my biggest premise in and sometimes the word teaching—I'm not even sure it's the right word. You know, it's about holding space and sort of, you know, leading workshop kind of situations where you allow kind of the collective consciousness and wisdom to
0: unfold. If I had pom-poms, I'd get up and I'd do a whole <laughs> <laughs> If I had pom-poms, I don't wear television. Okay, I'm so happy to hear you say this, yeah. Um,
1: the yeah. biggest thing that I think is important is to give space for each
0: and every one of us. To confront our own mortality. Now, when you say give space, is that that's equal to giving permission. Yes. Is that right? Okay. Yes. Because we live in a
1: culture that is still so death-phobic, nobody, you know, yes, today, after 20, 30 years of a lot of public input and education about palliative care, about end-of-life care, about hospice, we are certainly having way more conversations. You know, when I was growing up, the New York Times did not have a section on end-of-life issues. Now it does. Really? Absolutely. Um, But just the fact that most people don't talk about it, don't think about it. We live in a culture that doesn't doesn't include death as part of
0: life. Oh, yes, that's right. My mother used to say, it's nothing to be scared of, it's part of life. It happens to be the end part, but it's still part. Exactly. Okay.
1: Exactly. And so... To spend time with people, you know, whether it's a combination of exercises and conversations and talk and meditations, um, to allow us all to confront what our own fears and feelings are about the fact that we're not going to be here forever Mm -hmm. is the first step, I feel like, for people showing up for other people who who are in the dying process. Mm -hmm. That if you've never looked at it yourself, of what it means that... You're going to die someday, you know. Whether you're a clinician or a friend or a family member, if you've never really allowed yourself to feel that, then it's harder to show up for somebody who's actually
0: in the dying. Oh, process. people can be terrified of it. Yes, terrified of going to the hospital. Of some, uh huh, absolutely. You see that, and then they don't, and then they feel guilty for the rest of their lives because they didn't. Show, oh, I know people who have gone through this. Yes, I didn't go. I didn't spend time with my father. I couldn't watch him disappearing i couldn't watch him uh huh right right the fear around it oh. is so big what do you think that comes from i mean obviously it's horrible to lose someone you love there's a horror to it but what is you know it's it's a mystery why people won't talk about it maybe it isn't what do you think
1: you know i th- i think we live in a culture that is about grasping It's about holding on. It's about, you know, consuming. You know, as if, if we have enough stuff around us, we'll be here forever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the bad news is you won't, and your heirs will have to get rid of it. Exactly.
1: You know, (laughs) I mean, there are cultures around the world, you know, particularly in Buddhist cultures, but a lot of spiritual traditions
0: have practices around end of life. Well, I have a question to ask you. You're talking about holding on to stuff. I have noticed, I, I remember with my mother i'm doing it um you start to want to get rid of stuff you start not to want to hold on to stuff is that kind of a beginning of a letting go
1: oh i think so. i I think
0: it's such a healthy beginning of letting go
1: yeah Um, you know like you said if you don't let go you don't need 400
0: bead necklaces what for give them yes other
1: people will, will have to deal with Your accumulation
0: Uh uh (laughs) you know... I used to think, by the time I go, I want to have in my bathroom, for my children's sake, four cotton balls, one nail polish, two lipsticks, an eyeliner, and a cup, and that's it. Right. I just want to pare down to what they won't have to do. I'm not there yet, by the way, but it's a goal. Right. Okay, so... So there's
1: this level of it, and then there's, you know, what Rumi says is that if you don't cut the ropes now, who will do it after? Oh, Yes. You know, if you don't cut your attachments to this plane and the
0: material plane, some someone will have to. And you, by the way, you see people. I know I'm off the track, but I just you see people who are in the dying process, or even just older and not in the active dying process, and they're they're not eating so much. And the family is saying, you know, you have to eat. You have to. They're not. They're they're starting to let go of what their body. It seems to me. They don't need the same. They don't need to nourish what's not going to... What do you... Right, right. Yes? Yeah, that's, that's true. I think Like that's the force-feeding of people even sometimes oh, who are... don't oh. get me started on
1: force-feeding. <laughs> it's such a travesty. And yet, you know, again, in every subculture within our culture, yes. people think that food is love that feeding someone is the way you show your love to them whether it's chicken soup whether it's a smoothie whether it's the perfect and green drink legitimate. i know you're going to love
0: this i love you by by making this for you well and i want you to stay alive and strong exactly right right so when does that not become right well what well, okay here's that's I, a challenge because yes. for, for many
1: family members that's one of the hardest parts to let go of, is like, no, 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 I want my person, you know, they've got to keep eating, they've got to ha- keep right. having this soup, and the person is lying there going, stop, right. please, stop, right. st- stop this. Right. I'm trying to let go. Yes. Okay,
0: go go back to what you teach. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, there's so much, there's so much hours to say, but I know we don't, we don't have all of those, but what about, you say you teach, and what is it, you teach families to do So, it va- or give them permission to do. Right. It
1: varies. I think, you know, again, part of it is helping people come to terms with mortality on every level, theirs, their own, as well as the person
0: who they're caring for. So the person they're caring for, they have to learn somehow that their life will go on without this person. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's hard.
1: It's totally hard. And, you know, again, we don't, we don't respect and encourage the grieving process in our culture in any way that, that has depth to it. I mean, you know, when you work in a, you know, a straight kind of job. I mean, I was working in a hospital running an intensive care unit when my sister um, started the active dying process. Mm-hmm. And just getting time off to be with her. Was a struggle. Oh. And then after she died, it was like, well, you, you get three days off for oh. for the memorial and grief. It's like three days to deal with the loss of my sister. And you get that. six
0: weeks when a baby is born. Exactly. Yes.
1: And so to not honor and acknowledge the grieving process when there is a big loss in our lives. And... You know, and to not give people permission to, to go through those feelings with the understanding that when you don't, it gets stuck, it causes illness in your body, um, you know, I mean, on that very practical level, it, you know, it causes people to be less efficient at their oh, work. and if they're when sick, they're, they're, deal- they're going
0: to not be there at all. Right. right. I and mean, when
1: you're dealing with really difficult emotional stuff right. that you just haven't had the time to, to be with,
0: it... It doesn't work. And you also get, I noticed this, and I think it's, nobody. everybody means well. Everybody means well. Yes. And you get this, there are five, step, five parts to the grieving process, and bim bam, bim bam, bam, and closure. And it's so irritating. <laughs> what do you say about that? I mean, there are these kind of, and people are expected to go through five steps in a certain amount of time and then feel great.
1: Those expectations are completely unrealistic. Aren't they, though? And
0: those, you know,
1: the five steps that we've taken as the gospel of grief from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I mean, yes, they're they're an important concept, but none of it's linear. And none of it happens in a certain time frame. And, you know, I mean, I tell people... Yeah, I mean, there are certainly many spiritual traditions that have, okay, after three days, you get to this place. After 49 days, you get to the next place. In some traditions, it's 30 days. Oh, I was just going to ask
0: you about this. this. is my next question. Could you talk a little bit about the different cultures that have wisdoms?
1: I mean, just or, yeah, just simply to say there are wisdoms about how long it takes for well, either the, the spirit, you know, like in Buddhist tradition, it's 49 days that, you know, before the spirit is actually gone, you know, in Jewish tradition, I think it's 30 days. Um, But just that understanding that there are longer time periods than three days that people need for the grieving process. You know, there are, people have, have rituals that they do that are helpful, just having time to, to, just be with those feelings. And, and there's, there's different helpful. kinds of death. You know, there's, there's a difference, by
0: the way. <coughs> oh, absolutely. Between losing a spouse who's 94. Right. That's a horrible, sad thing. But it's not a tragedy. Right. Whereas, you know, losing a child. I mean, there, there are things that are just hideous tragedies. Right. And I'm guessing, of course, there's no accidents where you lose somebody. I mean, there's no dying process. So I don't know how you, how do you deal with that with families who are,
1: or is, that, is, that, is that death? not within
0: your? You know, I
1: mean, the truth is, my work isn't directly about right. dealing with grief and grieving. You're yeah, right; I see um, that. As you I know,
0: yeah.
1: I sort of—I mean, I do it when I when I have to, and right. certainly when I'm working with a family that is dealing with with a loss. Um, you know, it, it comes up, but I'm guessing there are, are people who specifically do yes. you know grief work.
0: What do you want parents? What do you want parents? That's a, you don't want parents to do anything because you don't want ever anybody to lose a child. What do you want people to do for their own sake if you have your choice and your leadership? What do you want them to do when they're facing a lingering death of a parent or a spouse? What is it that will keep them strong, do you think, or stronger?
1: I think when people are having long involved dying processes, It's really hard on Mm -hmm. the loved ones. Isn't that awful? It's really hard um, because people feel guilty taking the time to take care of themselves. You know, and I think that's the critical piece. I mean, you can't be at a bedside of someone you care about day in, day out and not take a break and feel like you're the only one who can be there. Mm -hmm. And, but I see that very, very often You know, the challenge in our culture is that... We don't have a good setup to take care of people at home who are dying. I mean, we have hospice care, which becomes your medical team. Oh, aren't they the angels of the world? Absolutely, but yeah. they're not there twenty four seven. And in order to have people there twenty four seven to help you with that process, you either need the financial resources to pay for and that's a caregiver. Huge. It's How do it's you? Huge. Most people
0: don't have one hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year. Right. For what do people do? well no. unfortunately yeah. it's you know
1: it, i think it's one of the biggest challenges in our culture right now with 79 million baby boomers who are going to die in the next 30 years and that we are so behind the eight ball in terms of so that's having big- systems that will care for people at home because most people like you say don't have the financial resources to pay for the level of care that you need when someone's actively dying whether that that should be part of medical care that should be part of our Uh insurance it should be paid for by insurance Mm -hmm. you know and not everyone has a circle of friends and family who can Mm -hmm. take time off from work or show up Mm -hmm. and and also feel equipped both Practically and emotionally to provide the care that. And then needed. there's that
0: part that you were just talking about, which is you 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 feel you're the only one. Right. So can you really go away for two days at least? I can tell you, you can't. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we're we're still up against a lot of challenges
1: on well, isn't that... all the levels of how we care for people at the end
0: of life in our culture. Now, at this where I heard you speak, there yeah. was another woman who spoke also. And she spoke about, lovely, and it was Lori. Yes. Uh, Yes. And she talked about sitting with the dying and telling them how you feel about them. And she called it an end-of-life evaluation, which is a lovely thing. Do you take part in any of that? Or Um, is that a... I would say not formally, mm -hmm. but,
1: you know, because I've been at so many bedsides of people at the end-of-life... You know, what What Lori's involved with is this kind of new movement called end-of-life doulas. Oh, that's right. Which that's is, it,
0: yeah.
1: you know, kind of what I've seen myself as doula, right, midwife. Right. They're uh-huh. kind of interchangeable words in some ways, um, you know, for many, many years. And, you know, when I taught volunteers both at Zen Hospice and at Jewish Family and Children's Services, so much of that teaching is about, what it means to just show up and be present for oh, people. So you, you work with volunteers?
0: I did for many, many years. Ah, so that's an important aspect. Oh, it's a training other people. You can't yes. be everywhere at once.
1: Absolutely. It's oh. a critical aspect. And, you know, now I'm the director of patient and caregiver education at the Mary Center for Palliative Care Education at UCSF. You work with doctors? We work with everyone. I oh, mean, right. I, my, Partner in crime at the Mary Center is Dr. Mike Raybo, who's the director of both outpatient palliative care at UCSF and also the director of education in the new division of palliative medicine at UCSF. Mm -hmm. Um, One of our goals for the Mary Center is to develop a volunteer component because I just see such a huge need for people in the community to be able to show up for each other. So not relatives necessarily. (coughs) Exactly. Oh. Exactly, And when I've trained volunteers in the past, I mean, I've trained hundreds of volunteers in the Bay Area around palliative care. And it's always amazing to me how appreciative people are when someone shows up at their bedside who can really be present for what, you know, whether it's to just sit there, have a cup of tea, not have a cup of tea, share a story. Not share a story. Okay, you're talking. But, that, that person is not their relative, is not someone who they have emotional uh, concerns
0: with. And and not somebody that the dying has to be <coughs> concerned about. Exactly. Behaving a certain way not to make the. Uh huh. Exactly. And and not necessarily forcing the person who's in an active dying process to dwell on the fact. Yeah. Oh, this yeah. is all so good to hear from you. I'm just everything you yeah. say. Yeah,
1: having just an impartial person, but who has some understanding, yes. you know, basic understanding of what the process is that someone's going through and is willing to just show up and be there, is so, so important. And again, you know, when I've taught volunteer trainings, so much of it is about Facing our own mortality first, so that you can sit there at the bedside mm-hmm. and not be afraid, mm-hmm. because you've gone through some of the thought processes and
0: the feeling processes of what it means that you know. Can I ask you to talk about that? Like, talk about what it means to face your own mortality. What does that mean to you? I don't. I don't spend every day scared to death that I'm going to die. I know I'm <laughs> going to die. Today's today, right? But what do you what do you see as people need to learn about their own or? So, you know, there's a quote on the back of my book um, that I actually
1: learned from Joan Halifax that when Plato was asked what was the most important thing about living, he said, practice dying. Oh, how do you do that? So that's the question. How do we do that? You know, in, in Buddhist traditions, there are meditations that people learn throughout life that actually are about practicing dying. Can you say what they
0: are to help us understand? A I mean,
1: some of them are as simple as... You know, literally breathing in and breathing out, watching your breath, noticing that each time you take an in-breath, it could be your last. Uh And having that consciousness while you're being quiet for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. You know, the practice of fasting. You know, in some traditions, you spend a day fasting during different times of the year. Um, fasting is a way to stop the body from metabolizing things Mm -hmm. quickly and it's a way of practicing the body shutting down Um, honestly I think that showing up at bedsides for people who are dying is also a way of practice familiarizing Mm -hmm. ourselves with what what it means to die what it looks like to die and it looks different every single time but to have that be part of our spiritual practice to to allow death to inform how we live
0: thank you that's wonderful so many other questions maybe you'll come back sometime and talk about some other aspects but let me let me ask you something sure. because I, I know I don't want to take advantage and make you sit here too long, but <laughs> <laughs> excuse me, um, as you know I'm about love letters, oh. and um, so I always kind of see the the door open for one of those. And one of the things I noticed when Laurie was speaking, yes, was the the well I, I'm familiar with this anyway because I do touch upon it on my in my workshops, but writing letters to the actively dying and talking about that end-of-life evaluation. Verbal is lovely, but it doesn't sit there for generations. Right. And right. my feeling, and I, I, I do this, and um, writing a love letter to somebody who's in the active dying stage, they're up to it. They're yeah. up to it. And I, I mean, I, I'm not going to take time for this, but so many experiences with people who have written them And receive them they work magic yes you know Um, so let me just ask you if as an adjunct by the way to sitting there and telling somebody how important they are because the the descendants will have this yes you know and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren I do want to say that with all the wonderful devices that we have and you know ways of recording how we feel um, technology changes every ten years. So what you put on a disc, uh-huh, every five down, minutes. I know. I didn't want to. I didn't want to go there. <laughs> right. Down the toilet in ten years, whatever you've committed to this, good stationery and indelible ink, you have letters that are a hundred years old that are readable. Right. A love letter is the most reliable storage. Right. For what you feel, I love that. So given, just because I'm that person, if <laughs> you were to write a love letter today, do you write letters? I do actually. Oh, good.
1: I I love writing letters. Mm-hmm. Of course, it has switched to doing it on the computer a lot. But sometimes when I know I have to write something really meaningful, I I get a card. I actually write fill it, you it know, with your own handwriting. Yes, right. yes, and you know I'm still a journal writer, so I do still write yes. on paper. I, I kind of go back and forth yes. now. So the business about
0: writing things on online is if you print it out and you sign it, yeah, that counts for a little something because your handwriting <laughs> is there and it's the proof that someone's been there. Anyone. Can. So who would you write to today if you were to write a love letter to someone? The world is open. I I mean, I'm listening to you. Okay, so I did think about this a little bit on my way here.
1: And today, I would write to my
0: mother. Oh, lovely. Okay. Now, um, yes. And, of course, I want to write one to your grandmother, but that's my business. Well, I
1: thought about my grandmother, too. Um, (laughs) But I've had feelings come up recently about my mother that I wish I could, you know... That place where you wish you could go
0: back and change something that you can't. Right. So who would you send it to? Because I feel that a love letter should be sent and received. Oh, interesting. And there's always a place to send it. Are there children in your family? Well,
1: there's really my brother and I, and I have um, a couple of
0: nieces Mm -hmm. and a nephew. So... My feeling is how lovely to send it to somebody where it will live and get passed down. People don't throw these things away. Right. So what I suggest to people, and I've done myself, is, you know, dear mom, I'm writing this to you, but I'm going to send it to right. whatever her name is, because um, I want her to know how I feel about you. And of course, there's always writing to yourself, addressing it to yourself, and you will be surprised. Uh-huh. Well, you won't be surprised. That the you who wrote it and the you who reads it are two different people. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. And then you just stick it in a book and let somebody find it. Right. Oh, okay. I hope you do it. Right. It's that finding things later that
1: I have a little book, a very small notebook, like probably smaller than three by five that I found of my father's handwritten notes in medical school in Paris. Wow of all these different disease processes, and in his very difficult-to-read writing, but in English, um, and with little scratches in French here and there.
0: Um, and I can't let go of that little Of course notebook. you can't, because you said the magic word, as far as I'm concerned, which is handwriting. And so many people, I have one friend who couldn't find her mother's chicken soup recipe. Matzo ball recipe for it, and she couldn't find it. And her sister said, "Well, you know, I'll just give it. I, I mean, I know how to." She said, "No, it was in mommy's handwriting. I exactly. need it." Right. Or my my yes. niece, who after my mother died was calling me every three days. I found another card from grandma in her handwriting. It's like they're here. Why is it that? Is. It is. I have this thin, thin pieces of paper that are
1: recipes that my mother oh sure there wrote you go that. They're they're so precious to because me. you're
0: you're touching something that's felt the touch touched. of her hand. Exactly as that yes, and that lives forever. Yeah. Oh, thank you for doing this with me. Thank you for doing I, I, you it. You know the the few times I've the couple of times I've heard you, I just learned so much. Thank you. You're so well. Well, until next time, this is Janet Gallon saying goodbye. Do you want to say what the names of your books are? Why do you do that? Uh, I, I just have one book at this point.
1: Someday okay. I'll, have, I'll have another one. It's called Last Acts of Kindness, mm-hmm. Lessons for the Living from the Bedsides of the Dying. Oh,
0: how wonderful. Okay, and I'm sure you can get that. You can find that in You can find it on online. Amazon. Yes. You can
1: find it on Kindle. You can, okay. Some bookstores you can
0: find okay, it. Okay, thank you. This is, you are a woman so worth hearing from. Thank you, dear. You're so welcome. Until next time, I will say goodbye.